This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Here we go. Welcome to the Shower of the Program. It is Rob Breckenridge with you on a Wednesday afternoon. You can reach us at 403-974-8255-974-TALK. We'll have more time for your calls and your texts later in this hour. And uh, got a lot of other stuff to get to as well. But I want to begin in this hour with the latest on the opioid crisis. We had some new numbers out this week from the Public Health Agency of Canada. Pretty staggering number. In 2016, 2,458 Canadians, at least, died of opioid-related overdoses. Works out to about seven people a day dying from this. Now, of course, the Alberta government just released uh, or just launched a more aggressive strategy to deal with this. Uh, looks as though we're a step closer to some mitigating steps in Calgary and Edmonton to try to get a handle on this, uh, specifically safe consumption sites or supervised consumption sites. That might prevent the number of deaths, but uh, obviously getting a grip on this situation is going to take a lot more. The question of how we got here, I think, is a question worth asking. And to that end, there was an important study recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which actually brings us back to a separate piece that was published in that same prestigious journal back in 1980. It was a very short one-paragraph letter with the headline, Addiction Rare in Patients Treated with Narcotics. Was that where the seeds were planted for this opioid addiction epidemic? Well, joining us uh, for more is the author of this uh, new study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. David Gerlink is a doctor and drug safety researcher at the Sunnybrook Research Institute. Dr. Gerlink, welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. I mean, it does seem odd that a, a little one-paragraph letter published in 1980 in the New England Journal of Medicine could have such an impact, um, but it, it seems to have. Uh, yeah, we've known for a long time that this letter was heavily cited and... I think it's fair to say uh, misrepresented, but um, let me give you the backstory. So, if, in the early 1990s, I was a pharmacist and uh, dispensed lots of prescriptions for morphine. But when someone came to the hospital with a sorry to the pharmacy with a prescription for morphine, they generally had cancer. It was really uncommon for a doctor to put a patient with back pain or chronic pain of any sort on a strong opioid. We were concerned about people uh, developing addiction, and in the mid to late 90s and 2000s, there, there came this fairly aggressive push to uh, to treat chronic pain better. Uh, to be fair, I mean, we don't have a lot of drugs that work well for chronic pain, um, but we began to get the message that we could uh, we could use opioids more safely than we thought. Uh, and one of the key bits of messaging there was that you know you were you know you might think these drugs cause addiction long term. Well, in fact, they don't. And one of the key references to support that was what was called the Porter and Jick study in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, we weren't told at the time that it was, uh, you know, five sentences long, and, uh, and it's not the sort of thing that most of us would have, you know, gone back to the library to look for. So it didn't happen overnight, though, as you say. This was published in 1980. We really didn't start to see the, the problem uh, increase or accelerate until, as you say, not until almost 20 years later. That's right, and uh, that happens to coincide or roughly coincide with the introduction of and the you know aggressive and frankly illegal marketing of OxyContin in the U.S. by Purdue Pharma. Um, Purdue's not the only bad actor in this space, but you know we know a lot about Purdue's activities uh, because of legal action against them just concluded over 10 years ago. And you know one of the things they admitted to doing was misleading doctors about the 
um, addiction potential of opioids. You know, it, I recall myself actually in the late 1990s um, being told that I, I not only did I not have to fear opioids for patients with chronic pain, but that um, that if I wasn't prescribing opioids, that I was doing them a disservice and I was being opiophobic. Uh, and I, I have to say, it was a message I was quite happy to hear. You know, doctors are in the business of wanting to relieve suffering, uh, and pain is the most common form of suffering we see. And so to suddenly be told that there's this an entire class of drugs, and they're the best drugs we've got, and they work well, and they don't, in fact, lead to addiction, was actually a message I think we were quite happy to hear. Well, yeah, and you can understand why. So what point did we begin to realize that this was not only unsound science, but that we were creating a whole new problem? Well, um, I think it, uh, th- that sort of gradually uh, evolved. I mean, you know, certainly, you know, let's say 10 years ago, 2007, I, um, as a hospital-based internist, was seeing all kinds of people with chronic pain who were, um, on often massive doses of drugs like hydromorphone and oxycodone and fentanyl. And um, it, it sure seemed as though they were being helped more than harmed by their medicines. Um, not everybody, of course, um, who takes them uh, develops addiction. Um, but it's, it's still quite possible to be very, it's actually very easy to be harmed by opioids despite taking them just as your doctor prescribes. Um, but I think over the last 10 years or so, we've, you know, we've gradually come to realize that um, a lot of what we were told about the safety and effectiveness of opioids 20 years ago uh, simply wasn't true. Right. So then in terms of the role of prescription painkillers in this crisis, I think a lot of people equate this crisis to the the use of street drugs, um, people injecting heroin and contaminated heroin, etc. But what role then has the use of these prescription painkillers played in this crisis? You'll get different answers depending on who you ask. I mean, I'll tell you my view. So, um, the, the the prescribing of strong opioids like oxycodone, hydromorphone, and fentanyl has gone through the roof in Canada and the U.S. over the past 20 years. Um, that um, increased prescribing has been accompanied by a marked increase uh, in the number of people dying from opioids and the number of people with opioid addiction and people who are seeking treatment for addiction and you know, coming to hospital with overdoses and so on. Um, you, you will still sometimes hear uh, parties say that the two are not related. That's just not even plausibly true. Um, it is true that some people who suffer from opioid addiction now did not start with a prescription from the doctor, but from a pill that they were, you know, pills they pilfered from somebody or were given or what have you. But I think most practicing doctors have patients in their care who uh, suffer with an opioid use disorder, and when you dig into their history, it started with a prescription for a bad ankle or you know a dental work or some you know minor injury, um, and the person just kept taking the drugs, and then things spiraled out of control. How much of a problem is it still the the overprescription of these kinds of drugs? Well, we have a couple of different crises now. So the so the the, the epidemic um, it has evolved, so the crisis has evolved, and I think it's fair to say we've got these twin crises now of faulty pain management, um, but also of addiction. So, you know, um, and, and on that first point, there will be some pain docs who will disagree with me quite strongly, but um, I think we still have a, um, a problem in medicine where we rely on opioids more than we should, more than the evidence um, suggests. And, uh, you know, what we know is that, you know, not only are there no long 
there are no long-term studies of opioids to say that they are a good therapy. There are plenty of studies, a larger body of medical evidence that shows just how much they can harm people. And the problem is that, that patients um, will very often um, take issue with that. You know, it's, it's very common to encounter a patient who's been on opioids for many years. They're typically on high doses, um, and they are adamant that the drugs are helping them. Uh, and, you know, they, they aren't necessarily addicted. They're just taking what the doctor prescribed. Um, but, you know, they're, in many instances, they, they primarily need their drugs not so much for pain relief, but because the alternative is going into uh, withdrawal. So someone who, for example, is on a fentanyl patch, a 100-microgram fentanyl patch, if he or she stops their patch or cuts their dose down too quickly, they'll feel horrible. Um, and that horribleness, that withdrawal syndrome is removed by resuming the drug. So, um, you know, we've got a, a large swath of the population who are convinced about the necessity of opioids at high doses, and we've had some doctors who will back them up on that. Um, it's just it, it, when you take it apart, uh, it's, uh, it's not what it seems to be. We also have this crisis of addiction. So people who are now, you know, out of desperation using what they can get, heroin, tablets they bought in the street, that are, things are just loaded with fentanyl, and people are, you know, dying, and dying by the thousands across North America because of exactly that, because they don't know what they're getting. Um, and they don't have access to the things that they actually need to to get out. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, m- I mentioned off the top the latest numbers we got from the Public Health Agency of Canada for 2016, uh, some pretty shocking numbers. What do you make of that? Oh, they're incomplete. So, you know, it's just, just shy of 2,500 people. Uh, it said uh, died of opioids in Canada in 2016. Uh, the numbers from Ontario are actually from 2015. I think the numbers from Alberta are not quite complete for that year. I could be wrong about that. There's no numbers from Quebec. Um, and but even if though even if the number of I mean to be blunt about this, if the number of tombstones was accurate about people who died from opioids themselves. There are all kinds of ways in which people can die from opioids that don't get counted. And I think this is particularly a problem in older people. So, you know, when an older person, for example, is on opioids uh, chronically and they they fall down the stairs and break their neck or they have a head injury or they die from a car accident, these don't get attributed to uh, opioid-related deaths, and yet, and yet really they are. So um, I, don't, I think it's fair to say that nobody really knows exactly how many people in Canada have died from opioids, but I would speculate that over the last 20 years or so, it's, it's in the vicinity of 30,000 or possibly more. Wow. Now, and I've seen a lot of people make the parallel to the SARS crisis, which involved, I think, a few dozen deaths, and just the you know, incredible coordinated response we got from governments. What, I mean, is, is it comparable here? Can we fault governments for not taking this seriously? Yes, we can. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I tweeted last night a comment about uh, the, the, the SARS response. I, I worked on the front lines in SARS in 2003. I saw hundreds of patients who had known or suspect, suspected or confirmed SARS. Um, and the public health response was different. It was an infectious condition as opposed to a, 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 a drug. Um, you know, it came out of the blue and there were a couple of waves. But, but it, it, working in the midst of it, it felt like there were people, at least locally, who were in charge and were overseeing what was happening. There were, there were important systematic failures on the broader level. But, you know, at my hospital, which is one of the busiest hospitals, uh, SARS hospitals at the time, um, things went about as smooth as they could and we were doing the best we could, it, because we had good people running the show. It, it, it feels very much um, with the opioid crisis that uh, it's, it's not getting the attention it deserves. I mean, 44 people died from SARS, and we've, we lose that many people in, 
in less than a week from opioids. Um, and uh, we don't have anywhere near the same or even close to a commensurate response from government. Like, Alberta's a good example. I mean, you have an unmitigated uh, emergency there. Yeah. Uh, and I think you've got some local leaders um, uh, in Calgary and Edmonton, I think, who are quite... Um, uh, quite comfortable calling it that. I mean, to any objective observer, that's what it is. But I don't think your public health officials uh, have uh, had the uh, the fortitude to call it that. So, uh, supervised consumption sites, for example. I mean, is that a is that a bandaid solution? I mean, how how much can that help? Do you think? You know, a, a lot of things have to happen. You know, doing one thing, whether it's putting the locks on everywhere or putting supervised consumption sites everywhere. I mean, th- these things, uh, they all have an important role to play, but what has to happen is that several things need to be done um, en masse and in a coordinated way. And so supervised consumption sites are actually a really important way of helping people with opioid use disorders not die today in their basements or their you know, public bathroom at a McDonald's. Um, you know, the, the, these, are, um, these are places that... Um, you know, uh, go a long way towards reducing the, not just the op- opiate-related deaths, but, but, you know, to a certain extent, the spread of things like HIV and hepatitis C from needle sharing. So, um, you know, uh, people might not want them in their backyard, but they, they, uh, they, are, um, they are a very important part of um, what needs to be done. The challenge when it comes to beating the addiction itself, um, I mean, that, that's, that's a huge obstacle. Yeah, I mean, addictions by their nature uh, are characterized by relapse. And so, you know, somebody with an addiction, um, you, know, what, you know, what do they need? They need to not die today from injecting what they thought was heroin. It was, in fact, uh, a whole lot of carfentanil. Um, and so that, you know, supervised consumption sites, you know, people around them who can resuscitate them if they need to with naloxone, um, they clean needles and alcohol swabs, and that's, that's all, like, that's overdose prevention 101. But those people might also want access to addiction care with uh, substitute opioids, drugs like methadone and suboxone that um, are much, much safer uh, and will help um, suppress the cravings and the withdrawals that go along uh, with addiction and access to specialist care. Um, so these are, these, are actually, these are actually very important interventions that really are nowhere near as widely available in Canada as they should be. But on the other side, we also need to prescribe opioids more cautiously and, you know, create fewer new cases of addiction by, you know, not taking 50-year-olds and putting them on massive doses of opioids for, for months or years at a time. Uh, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated uh, issue with many component solutions that need to be deployed, uh, I think, more aggressively in, in, in concert. Yeah, because then, I mean, it circles us back around to the initial problem, that chronic pain is, is an awful thing, and people in that situation are looking for some, some effective relief. I understand that, and, yeah. uh, you know, I see it every single day, uh, and it's a difficult position to be in because, you know, we nobody wants to be in pain. Um, the people are looking for a solution. Doctors are, uh, we want to help, and it's just the easiest thing to do is to prescribe a medication. You know, a lot of things um, aren't paid for, physiotherapy or occupational therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy for certain kinds of pain. You know, your drug plan will pay for your pills, but they won't pay for those sorts of things. For some people, it's weight loss or exercise, and those things are easy to say and they're hard to do. Um, But we we do live in a a pill-centric society, and I think... Um, we, you know, doctors re- resort to their prescription pads rather liberally. I certainly did myself, and to a certain extent, I suppose I still do, um, because you, we want to help people. But it's important for people and doctors, I think, to realize, and uh, this is going to sound like heresy, but I'm going to say it anyway, 
the goal of prescribing pain medicine is not simply pain relief. The goal of prescribing pain medicine is to, like all medicines, is to help the patient more than you harm them. And with opioids, um, I think it's very easy to make the case that we, we don't meet that goal quite as often as we or our patients think. Yeah. Great point, David. We'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your insight and appreciate you making some time for us here today. My pleasure. Take care. That is uh, Dr. David Jerlink, uh, Doctor of Drug Safety Research at the Sunnybrook Research Institute, author of this paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, reflecting back on this 1980 letter on the risk of opioid addiction, which seemed to be a large part of the basis for the sharp increase in prescribing these drugs, was that this very brief one-paragraph letter that appeared in the journal in 1980 that basically said there's a really minimal addiction risk in prescribing these drugs. One of the reasons why they became so widely prescribed, thus planting the seeds of the situation we're in now. So you got to wonder at some point whether this, this starts to play out in the, in the courts, and I wonder if we'll see that first in the United States. We're going to see some lawsuits brought as a result of this. I mean, that doesn't fix the problem we're in now. It helps us better understand how it started, how to avoid it in the future. And now in the meantime, what do we do? 403-974-TALK is our number. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.